You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. On today's show, I have a good friend in the Bitcoin space, and that's Stefan Levera. Stefan's been a Bitcoiner since 2013 and as a fellow podcaster has talked to some of the brightest minds in the space like Jack Dorsey. On today's show, Stefan talks about some of the things happening from a technological standpoint. We talk about Bitcoin risks and where new innovations may be taking us. So without further delay, here's my interview with the thoughtful Stefan Levera. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Stefan. Stefan, first time on the show. I know I was over on your show and I'm excited to bring you over here because, dude, you are a wealth of knowledge, especially on the technical front. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you, Preston. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I guess this is the first question I got for you. What was the aha moment for you with Bitcoin? Like, What kind of set it all off? Like most people, the first time I heard about Bitcoin, I thought of it like some foolish thing or it was just like some game currency whatever you know like fortnite v bucks or world of warcraft gold or whatever right what did it for me was actually an eric Voorhees article and i was reading it in december 2012 so that's when i came across it and so i being a libertarian and into austrian economics anti central banking anti fiat money this was the article for me that just made it click and so from then on i just couldn't stop thinking about bitcoin and talking about Bitcoin. And nowadays I eat, live and breathe Bitcoin. And so that was my moment. And so what I would say in terms of that article, I think it was that up until then, no one had explained it to me in a way that made sense that, oh, wow, this is actually a challenger to central banking. And of course, I love all different aspects of Bitcoin. I like talking about the economics of it, the technology of it, as you mentioned. And so for me, it was the economics of it that really got me interested. It's just that I was I'm not a developer, but I'm just like a relatively tech savvy person. And so that's what sort of enabled me to, I think, get a reasonable understanding of it relative to the average person on the street. Now, you came with a background in accounting, correct? Yes, that's right. I was working as an internal auditor and chartered accountant back in Australia. So I used to work at Deloitte and uh, then later I was working at some of the big banks. What made you such an Austrian economics person? What caused that? What triggered it? Right. So that's another whole rabbit hole. So that for me was actually even earlier. I was probably about 14 or 15 years old around there. And I was on IRC. So for the young ones, that's internet relay chat. That's like an old school chat system. And so I would hang out on IRC channels and I found this Australian politics channel. And this guy kept linking to Mises Daily articles. At the time, I just thought, what the hell? This is all crazy stuff. That's not going to work. But then it sort of the logic of it started to dawn on me as I read those articles. And then it just made so much more sense to me than what I was being taught in terms of the Keynesian and monetarist ideas I was being fed at school and at university. And so for me, I went down that Austrian rabbit hole in terms of reading Mises and Rothbard and Hans Hermann Hopper, Guido Hulsman, Joseph Salerno, and the modern day well-known practitioners, people like Tom Woods and Bob Murphy. I was reading a lot of their work, listening to their lectures or podcasts. And that was what gave me that awareness and understanding from an Austro-Libertarian perspective. And that's, I think, also what helped what you might say 
primed me for being open to the idea of Bitcoin, this anti-state money, anti-fiat money. This is not what you're typical. What, what age did you say you were? 14? I was about 14 or 15 when I started like, learning yeah. a little bit about Austrian economics. And I would say it took some while for it to take, right? Maybe a couple of years later, I would have said, yeah, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I'm interested in Austrian economics. But it sort of took time. And obviously, when you're younger, your patience for reading these long books is not as much. I started out reading articles and shorter books. And then by the time I got to about university age, then I was reading more of the longer Austrian books and considering myself at least a student of Austrian economics. It seems like you had an interest in finance and just money from a very young age. What do you think triggered that? So for me, I think it's a few things, but I loved that idea of when you're young, you think of this idea of I guess it's kind of like passive income, but although, although that can be overplayed nowadays. But I mean, this idea that, hey, if I save this money and I earn, you know, back in those days, you could actually earn interest in the bank, right? Because you would actually earn interest. And so it was like this idea, this fascination of, oh, hey, what if I save and then I can actually earn money off of the interest or earn money out of the income? And so that was a very appealing idea to me. And I would say from a young age, I was more of a saver. Like I was already a kind of a saving kind of person. And so even from my first job, I, I was relatively good about saving and I enjoyed reading about personal finance and accounting and fi- like some of these different ideas. So I think all of those things sort of contributed to the, I guess, the personality and the person I am now. Fascinating. On your show that you do, you cover a lot of the technical aspects on Bitcoin. I find myself tuning into your show all the time to just make myself smarter. And I mean, I come with an engineering background, but your ability to explain it and just kind of get the questions out of your guests that have this superior technical knowledge. I mean, they're they're literally the ones clacking on the keys, making these these things happen. And you're able to ask such amazing questions to them. I guess my question to you is when you're looking at it holistically over all the guests that you've interviewed through the years, what would you say are like the top three technical things that you think most participants in the space don't even understand, get, or just you can tell that people just overlook it or just really don't care about it that you find really valuable? Right. I think part of that is just that awareness that you need to really play around with things to learn. Because I think a lot of people might, they might have heard someone talk about this idea, but never have actually used it. And I think that's an important thing. So, it's important to try to get as close to bare metal as you can where, where you can, right? Whether that is learning how to take your coins off the exchange, whether that is learning how to run a Bitcoin node, whether that's learning how to use hardware wallets, whether that's playing around with multi-signature. So th- these are a few examples. Like I guess the lesson is really actually try to use this stuff. And so that's something even for me, it's not always possible, but when I can, if I'm interviewing someone, I try to actually use their product or their software or their hardware if possible. It's not always feasible, but the better you, you can, then you're giving more of a real, you're, you're giving a more well-informed perspective on that. Other concepts that I think a lot of people struggle with, just like when you're backing up your Bitcoin as an example, right? You know how most people might, if you set up a Bitcoin wallet or a hardware wallet, you might've seen how we write down the 12 or 24 words. What a lot of new people might struggle with is that understanding that that is your backup, not just for the coins that you have received up until now, it's the backup for the coins you'll receive in the future on that wallet. And that's a really kind of crazy idea, right? Because you're coming back from a non-Bitcoin perspective. You might think, oh, I'm writing in my Word document and I hit Control S or I hit Save, and that saves my progress up to now. It doesn't save my future progress, but these 24 words you write down actually is for your future. 
And then the other aspect I think a lot of people wouldn't understand is just that idea of trying to retain cold storage security. So as an example, when we're thinking in the world of Bitcoin security, people might take things without understanding. They might go and enter those 12 words or 24 words into an online connected computer or phone. And then all of a sudden, they're taking what was previously a cold setup and now putting it into a hot wallet setup, which is now a completely less secure method of storing your coins and find that might be reasonable for, let's say, a smaller amount you keep in your Lightning wallet or maybe a privacy coin join wallet or just a day-to-day spending, but it should not be what you're doing for your, if, you're, if you're holding a significant amount. So these are little things around the security aspects of it. But of course, I think maybe to the spirit of your question is also around aspects around where is Bitcoin going in terms of Lightning and scalability and other aspects, right? So it might be that as an example, we as a community often say, not your keys, not your coins. However, it's going to get more and more difficult over time because over time, there's only so many people who can actually hold a UTXO. What's a UTXO? Unspent transaction output. And so over time, the network and the community and the movement, the project, whatever you want to call this, is going to have to figure out ways to help deal with that. And there are various ways. Obviously, Lightning is an important part of that, but it's only one part of the strategy. In the future, we may be operating on things like a channel factory, uh, it's been colloquially called, or more professionally, it might be termed multi-party channels. So that's, that's one example. Or another example might be the usage of federated mints. That's another example. As an example, if you look at what's going on in Bitcoin Beach down in El Salvador, in El Zonte, where Galoy created Galoy Money, the company created the Bitcoin Beach wallet. And it's like this idea of like, okay, it's a custodial Lightning wallet, and it is also a multi-sig community-held wallet. And so I think we're going to see advanced ideas around that. I think another interesting aspect is just around being private in Bitcoin. I think it is possible to be private with Bitcoin. It just takes additional steps. And so as an example, people need to learn how to, for example, run their own Bitcoin full node, and then ideally use some kind of privacy-preserving wallet. Examples might be Samurai Wallet on Android or Sparrow Wallet on the desktop. And these wallets allow you to connect to your own Bitcoin node, ideally, although they can be used in default setup with somebody else's node. Of course, it's best if it's with your own. And then they can use different techniques like the Whirlpool coin join as an example. And then when they're going to spend, they are using post-mix spend techniques like Stonewall. So that's an example where it makes a transaction that even looks like a coin join, even if it's not a coin join. So that's just a few examples. I think there's all these different technical realms within Bitcoin and it's very difficult for one person to sort of be an expert in all of them. So really, I think it's sort of like, I think of myself as I do as much as possible to try to be able to be a good interviewer on the topic that I'm interviewing, whether it's Bitcoin mining or it's privacy or it's lightning or it's something else, or it's you know the financial aspects of Bitcoin, the regulation, the economics. There's all these different nuances to it. So I just try to do my best to get as knowledgeable as I can to be able to ask a skillful or an intelligent question of the guest. I want to follow up on two of the points you made there. The first one on the UTXO comment. I'm not sure that I I follow what you meant by people won't be able to hold their own Bitcoin or their own keys. Right. What did you mean by that? So think of it like this. When we spin up a Bitcoin node, we're downloading the entire blockchain of transactions. Now, remember, that's the history of all the transactions. And I think today that's probably 430 gigs around that and rising over time. But that is distinct from the UTXO set. And so think of it like this. The 
entire blockchain is the history of every transaction. And so your Bitcoin node, it downloads all those transactions. And then some Bitcoin nodes run in what's called pruned modes, which is like a cut down version of that, maybe five gigs, let's say, just as an example. But that is distinct from the what's called the UTXO set, which is the set of unspent coins. So think of it like this. Now, in a superficial sense, people think, oh, I just send Bitcoin to this address and it lives in this address. But that's not really precise. It's more like UTXOs or coin, Bitcoin coins live inside a UTXO. You can have multiple UTXO that were sent to the same address, if that makes sense. And yeah. so what's actually going on in the background is your wallet is having to select which UTXO it's using when it's spending and so on. But to the point I was saying, that UTXO set has a scaling limitation. And it's just literally not going to be feasible for everyone on earth. Let's say there's 8 billion of us. It's just not, it's nowhere near feasible for everyone to actually hold their own coin in that UTXO sense. Then that brings the question, well, okay, what can we do about this? What can we do to make it possible? And so some of the ideas, as I was saying, are relating to multiple people holding or holding a piece of a coin, let's say, of a UTXO. And so that's where, let's say, if we have, let's say we have it, we're living in the advanced world where maybe we got any prev out and we have the L2 lightning network. And then let's say instead of having a lightning channel between you and me, Preston, it might be like a lightning channel between you, me and 20 other people. And we're all sharing that UTXO. So that's how the idea could scale and allow for more and more people to still have some level of self-sovereignty. Although of course it is a spectrum. I also want to hit on the coin join part that you brought up because I don't I mean, my audience, I'm sure a lot of the people in the audience know what CoinJoin is, but for those that don't, explain what it is and then explain what your, what your point was there earlier. A CoinJoin, we can think of it like, let's say we got down at a table and everyone was blindfolded. Let's say we each had a $10 note. And what we're doing is somehow, if you could sort of make it so that you could all shuffle around those $10 notes and then pick out, and we knew atomically, you knew for certain that they weren't going to run off with their $10, you would put in $10 and get back a different $10 note. You can sort of think of it a bit like that. And so the way CoinJoin operates is it's there to try to break the deterministic links between how when we spend our coins. And so what that does is it makes it more difficult for somebody who's an outside observer trying to surveil what's going on on the chain, as it were. And so that's one way that people can give themselves a little bit more privacy in terms of when they are spending coins so that people don't necessarily know how much you've got in your overall stack. Because let's say, I mean, hypothetically, let's say someone was like a whale, you know, let's say you're Michael Saylor or some, you know, you're someone with like, you know, massive number of coins. You don't necessarily want to spend directly out of that coin because they might then know how many coins you've got because they could look on the blockchain and see, oh, look, look at the change output. There's 10,000 Bitcoin going back to that guy. He must be rich. Okay. Then that could create a personal security issue for you. The way I think of it is you might want to be wary about that and carve off a small amount into your CoinJoin wallet, as an example, like Samurai Wallet or Sparrow Wallet. And you could then, or Join Market as another example, and you could run CoinJoin and then spend out of that CoinJoin balance to which an outside reserve, if they try to look at that on the chain, they won't necessarily be able to trace that back. Now, I, maybe I could explain that just a little bit better. One aspect of well, how are they able to trace it back? Well, it's because when you spend Bitcoin, it has to, your wallet has to select from those UTXOs in its pool, if you will, or in its wallet. And what people 
can do if you are a chain surveillance firm, such as Chainalysis, Elliptic, Cyphertrace, some of these others, they are applying these kinds of probabilistic techniques to try to say, ah, look, these coins were spent together, therefore they must be controlled by the same person. Or we have figured out that this is, let's say, the cold storage of this exchange A, and that's cold storage of exchange B. But look, we saw it come out to there and go to this person. And then this person later paid me and I can see, okay, now I can trace back and see that person's financial history. For some people, it's not a concern. They're not really thinking as deeply about it. But in the future, it could present more of a privacy and it could actually represent a security risk as well, if they were to know. You talked a little bit about the centralization on some of these lightning wallets and people basically outsourcing their full node to somebody else and, and the consolidation of that. Do you see that this is a concern or issue moving forward? Or do you think that it's the optionality of everybody still being able to run their own full node and run their own lightning wallet is good enough? Is what matters. Yeah. Look, I'm with you there on the optionality being point, right? The point is that anyone could. Not everybody will. And I think we have to be realistic about that because, look, it would be like the equivalent of all of us being email server nerds back in the day and then being annoyed that everyone just uses Gmail instead of running their own email server, right? Maybe in the future that's... But of course, we want to make it as easy as possible for people so that that way, in some sense, the system is more robust. It's less amenable or less prone to capture because the coins and everything is just kind of all distributed so much so that no one person, company, government, whatever could compromise the system and sort of capture it in, in a way that would hurt the qualities of Bitcoin that we really like, like this idea of permissionlessness, this idea of inflation resistance and these uh, related ideas. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. 
Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I have a little bit of a technical question here for you. So, you know, I got my own full node. I got my own Lightning wallet that that's coming off of my own full node. So when I make a Lightning purchase, it's being routed through my node. I could set up family members. I could set you up with a Lightning wallet that runs through my node. So let's say you accumulate $10,000 worth of Bitcoin on that Lightning wallet, and then I just turn my node off. What happens to your wallet in that kind of situation? I think the impetus and the intent of the question is, so you got Wallet of Satoshi, you got these companies that are basically providing these types of services for, for Lightning wallets, Blue Wallet. People aren't setting it up and configuring it back to their full node. They're just using their full node. So what if that company goes under? What happens to like all of those addresses? Let's just say, say the company just disappears for whatever reason, you know, just from a, from a risk standpoint for all those people that are using that, that solution, but aren't configuring it to their full node. I see. Yeah. So essentially you are running the risk then that, that you lose that money, essentially. I mean, it's possible that they try to find people and give them, make them whole, but it, do you really want to take that chance? Right. Although in fairness, I can also understand like I'm trying to steal man here. The steel man would be, well, for some people, it's easy to onboard them this way. And then later they can then go and advance up the yeah. stack and learn to become non-custodial, right? That would be some of the argument here. So essentially, yeah, that's, that's kind of the main point. Um, but if, you're, if that node went, like they would need to find a way to, ultimately at the end of the day, you are still using custodial coins, right? So you are reliant, right? If I, if I keep my coins on your node, well, I'm, I'm custodial in that case. I'm custodial to you. You're the one actually holding my coins. So generally though, we would probably say like for most people, Lightning should be seen more like their day-to-day spending and not necessarily keeping yeah. their savings. Yeah. But certainly it, it, it might be a caution for people out there to think about how much and think, of, think through more carefully because what can happen in practice, right? Like I think for people who are really involved and really engaged, they're well aware of what they've, what they've got and where it is. But for somebody who, let's say they're more of a casual person, or maybe they're somebody who got sent $10 four years ago, and they've just sort of left it and forgotten about it. That could be an example in this case where maybe, and now that $10 four years ago might, might be worth $100, who knows? And so it's, it's one of those examples where maybe a casual user might lose out and lose some money there. But it is, it is definitely a challenge around the whole trying to improve non-custodial adoption of Bitcoin because there are always trade-offs with these things. So as an example, if you are trying to do everything yourself, well, then that means you might be having to run your own channels. You might have to be doing your own management of that lightning node to make sure what is the uptime of that? What's the, you know, do you know how to back it up? If something went wrong, could you recover it? All of these questions are you know, they are important. And so I can understand why if people just use those more custodial or maybe even like a hybrid option, there are some that work in that way as well, where you might still hold the keys to the coins. So an example might be Phoenix Wallet, where you still hold the keys to those coins. You still wrote down the 12 words, but your ability to spend and receive is dependent on that provider. And maybe that's a better trade-off balance for some people. So in that case, if everything else went away, you still have your 12 words and you could recover those coins using the likes of a wallet like Electrum or others where you can just recover it, the coins. So it's a spectrum. And the idea is we're trying to get people down further and further down that funnel 
such that we can maximally retain the qualities of the system we know and love. I'm trying to understand the business case for a company like Wallet of Satoshi that's providing this service. Because when you look at the amount of fees that they're able to collect on Lightning today, I mean, it's just, there's not much uh, juice to squeeze there. Now, I suspect in the future, especially as Lightning adoption picks up, that 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 might drastically change and you might see the amount of velocity. I know people hate this term, velocity of money. The velocity of money that's going through the rails would, I think, pick up in a dramatic fashion from where it is today. And I think that even keeping the fees as low as they are, if that would even persist, I just think the, the sheer speed of all the transaction that would be going through the channels would increase the amount that's being made significantly. So is it a long-term play? Uh, walk us through what you think the, the business case is there. So in some cases, it might be ideological. They want to support this network and they want to make Bitcoin become sound money. So yeah, they're kind of yeah. ideologically committed to it. But I think you're right to also point out that as this maturity, as the network matures, we will start to see professionalized routing node operators. And so in the case of the big node operators like Wallet of Satoshi, I mean, they could be charging. I mean, for all we know, the charge to send Bitcoin in a non-custodial permissionless way might actually even charge a premium over what we pay today for credit card payments. And if credit card payments are, I don't know, half percent, one percent, if you account for the fraud and so on, then you know it might well be that even paying 0.2 to 0.4%, let's say, on the Lightning Network is a reasonable trade-off and the users are comfortable with that and that aggregated across enough users, the likes of all of Satoshi or others can make money even on that. And maybe that's one aspect of what they're doing. Maybe that's one aspect that they are, let's say, a Lightning service provider for their customers who are using Wallet of Satoshi or others, other liquidity providers. And so maybe that's part of what they're doing. And maybe what they're doing is peering or partnering with some merchants and say and sort of doing a deal where let's say you know maybe they have bit refill vouchers right in the app and they're able to get a percentage there so maybe that's kind of part of the idea is that it's it's a convenience layer and lots of average users will happily pay for convenience and so maybe that's where the profit comes from for them but it is yet to be seen let's say you know it seemed like the El Salvador announcement and then them using it as legal tender in along with the dollar down there in their country really led to a significant amount of adoption on the lightning network. Do you think that that was maybe the impetus for why we saw such explosive growth in 21? And if so, what does, what does that mean for you moving forward? Right. I think you're right to say that and to point that out. I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's probably something like 1,500 coins that were on the network at roughly the start of 2021 towards the end, where it's probably 4,000 coins were in Lightning channels, something like that. And that's in public channels, not even counting the private or unannounced channels that we know exist between some of the large exchanges. So that's just an example. And we've seen probably last I saw, I think it's over over 15,000 or over 20,000 Lightning nodes are out there now. Whereas I recall in October of 2019 at the Lightning Conference, around in those days, it was maybe 6,000 Lightning nodes were in existence at that point. And so we have to say we have seen a big explosion in the growth of Lightning nodes. I think part of that is community involvement, enthusiasm. We've seen a lot of pleb node runners who just want to support the network and they're interested and it's part of their own learning journey that they want to run a Bitcoin node. And then, of course, we're seeing the professionalized operators as well. 
And also we are seeing some services like, for example, Zion, this attempt to create a more decentralized social media. And as part of becoming joining on that network, you're running a lightning node. These aren't necessarily even what we would, you know, you and I would term hardcore Bitcoin people. These are people who just want to use the service. And as part of that, they're actually, without really knowing too much about it, they're running a Bitcoin node in the background. Now, admittedly, these are more like VPS nodes, virtual private server nodes, as opposed to like, you know, the Umbral or the MyNode or the Raspberry Blitz sort of physical box. But nevertheless, it is a lightning node and it's all part of the journey. So I think certainly the El Salvador story and news around legal tender helped drive more professional interest in Bitcoin and lightning node management, whether you are open node or whether you are Chivo wallet whether you are Ebex Mercado or some other company looking to sell services and using the Lightning Network in El Salvador. So I think that is also another aspect of a stress test that we are going to see, that we have been seeing, and we are continuing to see. Hey, so when you think through the risks moving forward, I think this is the question that I think my audience likes to hear the response to the most. (laughs) What do you think are some of the, the risks moving forward. We used to talk about the 51% attack. I think after the, the China migration of all their hardware, a lot of that concern really... I don't hear people asking me personally about that too much anymore. I'm with you. I don't get that question either. I would say that is a little bit more of a new coiner question, right? It's a common one. They're thinking, oh, 51% attack. That's probably not the one that most people are thinking of in their like. Once people have been sort of further down the rabbit hole, I think they, they turn their attention more to other questions like, will the system get captured? That might actually be more of a risk, like that if everything was to be captured and let's say potentially if as there are certain supply overhang uh, arguments that uh, I spoke about actually recently with BJ Boyapati as well, that potentially if there was to be a Gox supply, you know, back from 2013, supply overhang of all these new people who receive these coins. And if they decide to sell them, uh, could that slow down the growth of the Bitcoin network? Um, maybe another idea would be, and kind of related to the capture idea, is that if not enough people actually take their sovereignty seriously enough to actually hold their own keys, and that if all the coins end up being held in certain large custodians that then become equivalent to the Fort Knox or to the other well-known gold vaults that can be captured? And could that impact or impinge on the qualities of the system? I think those are a few examples that come to my mind. But I mean, for me, to be honest, I still think of these scenarios as very, very, very unlikely. And they're all just slowing adoption down. It doesn't... I mean, that's not stopping adoption. That's not breaking the protocol. That's just... I mean, it's just, it's just slowing yeah. things down. Almost like you would have a ban in, in a major country. It would be a setback. The price would get punished, most likely. I, I mean, I have no idea, but I would suspect that. But then it's, yeah. it's just going to keep going, right? Like there's others yeah, that are going to ban it. I could think of maybe, I mean, look, even though I'm, I'm extremely bullish on Bitcoin, I think it's going literally 10 to $20 million per coin in today's terms, right? Or something in that range, eventually. Like, I don't know when. But it is a risk for people to think it's inevitable. You know, like we can't just say, oh, it's all, it is important to, to not get complacent because there have been bugs in Bitcoin's past, right? There was the uh, famous buffer overflow. I think 84 billion Bitcoins were created in 2010. Now, of course, that's an early example. There was another inflation bug that, not, that did not get exploited in 2018. And so that's another example where, you know, that could really 
injure the confidence or the perception of Bitcoin. In those Don't. scenarios, there can be a patch. It can be full node operators can step in and adopt the patch. Walk us through that. What, right. what would so, that look like? And, and obviously, it would cause enormous amounts of damage in the short term. But is it recoverable? Is it something that the network can, can come out of after enough time and garner confidence and trust again, even though something like that would happen? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think you could argue from one point of view, you could say, well, what if the people couldn't agree on what was the correct chain to go back to? And what would the right checkpoint be? Like if, let's say it wasn't something that everyone agreed straight away, oh, that was wrong. It was actually something that got discovered later on. And, you know, then it would then be like, oh, wait a minute, we'd have to like go back and figure out what's the right point to go back to. And what if people are transacted in that time? Are they just, well, too bad. Sorry, too bad. So sad, right? But yeah, look, broadly, I think the reason you and I and many other people are into Bitcoin is because, well, very chiefly is the 21 million cap. And we would never, ever want that to be changed. I mean, the truth of the matter is that the actual amount is a bit less than that because there are some cases where obviously coins got lost and some coins were never claimed when they should have been. There were some examples where there were bugs and you know, coins weren't claimed. But you know, assuming just you know, for simplicity of say 21 million, you know, I think essentially there would be a bunch of developers who come out with a patch or some kind of code and they would then essentially have to be able to convince enough people to be able to roll to that, roll their node back to that. And you would be relying on, let's say, the node implementation software people to also help, help make it easy because not everyone's technical, right? So the likes of Umbral and Ronin Dojo and Rathba Blitz and MyNode and you know, Start9 and so on would have to make their stuff work for that too. What else? You'd have to make sure, you'd have to try to get all the exchanges and the miners on board. That said, I believe the miners would follow where the quote-unquote economic majority <laughs> went. So of course, they, they would follow the incentive there, right? But it would still be a pretty tough coordination problem, right? Because again, there's no king, there's no person in charge. Okay, let's say Adam Back comes out and says, look, guys, I think this is the right way. Well, I don't know. Is that even... But look, I do think that for better or worse, people would not let, let that kind of thing happen. And there, of course, is a lot of effort around Bitcoin development. That said, oftentimes the bottleneck is actually around review time, right? Having skilled contributors. And I think if you had asked this question maybe a couple of years ago, or if we had been considering this question a couple of years ago, we might have been thinking, well, okay, we need some more funding for Bitcoin review, like Bitcoin core review. And I think now it's actually that there is funding. It's the bottleneck might actually be more like getting enough people who are skilled enough and want to work on Bitcoin because there can be challenges to it too, right? Some Bitcoin developers are getting sued by Craig Wright and others, and that can, and it can be a bit, there can be some pressures for the, developers and contributors in Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin in general. So it seems like there's, there can be like flame wars and things going on in online. And that's always been the way, but you know, it, it's not necessarily the, the most you know, attractive uh, thing from that point of view. But at the same time, now the flip side argument would be, no, actually, this is going to be the future of the world's money. Having a chance to work on that and contribute to that is incredible and would represent working on just like this incredible pinnacle of what, a pro what an incredible project, what an incredible civilizational infrastructure Bitcoin is for mankind. And so working on that should be, very, should be seen as like a very prestigious thing. And maybe that's part of where things go in five, 10 years time. 
You know, it's interesting when you were when you were talking through the scenario of a fork and trying to convince nodes to adopt whatever software version and then the miners and all that. I wrote this down. I wrote down decentralization equals you have to have a slow and methodical process with minor updates to the protocol if you're truly decentralized. Because if you get yourself in that situation, it could just be completely disastrous if you have this kind of 50-50 split as to what people think the software baseline is. Now, if you have a centralized protocol and we could probably talk about a whole bunch of uh, examples of this in the space of centralization. It's not as big of a problem for them because if they control a majority of the nodes and they can steer the ship because it's centralized, they can make a mistake and, and roll to whatever software update they want and control the, uh, the adoption on the full node. So it's a lot easier if you're centralized Correct. in order to do right. that. So Bitcoin's strength is its decentralization, but it also comes with this with this really important quality of being extremely conservative, like extraordinarily conservative in software updates, in testing, and uh, and and I think we see that in the community. I think the culture in the community is exactly that, and I think it needs to stay that, especially because we are decentralized. It's not like we can convince a host of 10,000 full node operators to just do this one thing. I mean, each person is thinking in their own terms and their own critical thinking as to what they think it is or isn't. Correct. And I think that's an important distinction because you see so often hacks happen in the altcoin world. And then they just say, oh, look, we're just going to pause the network. We couldn't pause the Bitcoin network. We couldn't say, hey, guys, stop trading. Hey guys, stop uh, transacting. We can't stop them. So how do we coordinate these things? Well, it takes work. It takes individuals who put their hand up and try to coordinate things. I mean, even if I'm thinking back to the Taproot soft fork, which is now activated in Bitcoin, but it took work. It took work from hundreds of reviewers of Taproot code. It took work from the likes of, uh, for example, Alejandro de la Torre from. Um, so he used to be at Pull In, and now he's got his own consulting operation going, and he went around trying to find, ask all the miners, hey, are you interested to run Taproot and try to help build support? And so fundamentally, anyone trying to change Bitcoin has to do that. And I think Taproot was a great example of a decentralized effort because you had you know, people like that and you had people like, uh, I believe, uh, Hampus Schoberg, who set up the taproot.watch website and all, all these other people who are contributing in their own little way, whether that was reviewing or helping explaining what this was or trying to write code and trying to help the miners get on board as well. People trying to pressure the exchanges saying, hey, CZ and Binance, please support Taproot. We want Taproot. And so I think that is probably a good example. I mean, there was arguments internally about how to do it, right? About how to activate it. He stopped following me after I did that. <laughs> <laughs> he used to follow my account and then he, he stopped following me after I pinged him on Taproot. Hey, from a regulatory standpoint, how do you see 2022 playing out? Ginsler, and I'm talking mostly from a US perspective, and I know you're right, looking yeah, at yeah. it from a global perspective, but here in the US, Ginsler has just been beating the drum that there's basically Bitcoin and then there's everything else. And how do you see him making a play at this? Is he going to make a play at this? Because, I mean, he's, he's been in charge at the SEC for quite a while now, and it doesn't seem like anything has really been done. So is he, is he going to get something done in this administration, assuming that he's there for only four years total? Is he going to be able to get anything done? What does that even look like if he gets something done? What are your thoughts? 
when it comes to the SEC, the big question everyone seems to ask is, what about the spot ETF, right? And so there's different concerns. I've seen people share some share concerns about rehypothecation or using paper coin to suppress the price of Bitcoin in the physical, or in the physical, in the spot markets. I think broadly speaking, it seems like a lot of the regulatory attention and pressure is coming more around stable coins. It's not really Bingo. coming around, right? It's not really coming around Bitcoin. It seemed like you know, for better or worse, it seems like they, they, they sort of see it like, oh, Bitcoin, that's just your little store of value coin. You guys can do whatever you want with that. But stable coins, okay, we're regulating that. And obviously securities, we're regulating that. That's, again, that's as I, as a, I, as a relative outsider in that sense, I'm not an American myself, though obviously as a Bitcoin podcaster myself, I try to stay up on the space and what's going on. So it seems to me like if there were actions coming from that side, it might be more against altcoins and maybe regulation on stablecoins is probably the most likely aspect that I can see. Now, in the future, it could well be that the, it, it, Bitcoin becomes a political football, just like lots of other things. And there might be arguments about proof of work energy usage. There might be arguments about inequality. There might be arguments about all sorts of aspects. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. All right, back to the show. And it makes sense yeah. why they're going after stable coins from, from a government standpoint, not as a, as a individual, right? But yeah. I, it, what it really does, if I'm going to simplify it for the audience, is just the Fed, the central banks have enormous control over these units, these fiat units in the system. And if they don't like a transaction, they can just completely stop it. They can go into, into your account at that bank. They can claw all those units out of your account at will. And a stable coin effectively bypasses that control. They're not able to do that with a, with a stable coin if you, you got it in your account. So I think the growth rate is scaring the hell out of them. Do you know the market cap of this, of like the USDC and some of these stable coins? I know it's over a hundred billion, right? Oh yeah. It's grown a lot. Uh, I don't have the number off the top of my head, yeah. but yeah, definitely. It's absolutely true. They've grown massively over the last year or two. I think the demand for them isn't just in our Bitcoin and crypto world. It's actually people even just in other countries who just want US dollar exposure. And they, would, they found it easier for whatever reason to hold USD stable coins than to try to get physical cash. Or maybe they just found it more convenient because they could transact. To your point, it's the regulation aspect of it is that typically with these stable coins, it's only KYC, know your customer, AML, anti-money laundering, a lot of those requirements seem to only come at the beginning, at the end of the process there, and where people who are just kind of interacting inside that closed loop, there's not as much control being leveraged there by the government in terms of regulatory controls around who spends what to where and sells and whatever. So it remains to be seen what happens there if the US government does try to clamp down further on the stable coins and say, no, even for every, each intermediary step, we need KYC or we need some kind of identification that potentially, we don't know what direction they, they come down there. But I also think we are going to see more technological development around synthetic US dollar. And so there are ideas around this being done, like what some people have termed stable channels or also arguably called DLC stable coins, right? So it's like this idea of a discrete logarithmic contract stable coin. And so, which is essentially like, the idea that you might have a lightning channel with somebody and it would be actually a contract for difference in the background. And so we might load some sats and then you know, try to true up based on the price of the real USD price. So that, that might be an interesting technological direction. And of course, I'm sure you're aware, but just for listeners, um, HRF and Strike recently put up a bounty for, I think it's a one Bitcoin bounty, I can't recall, but essentially they are looking for somebody to create that. Essentially, there are a lot of people, and I recently came, I was, in, I was down in El Salvador. So I was there for adopting Bitcoin and LaBitConf. And talking to people there, I definitely got the sense a lot of people really like the use of stablecoins there. Now, I don't, I'm not a stablecoin guy myself. I'm just Bitcoin only. But I see, I see stablecoins as kind of like a crypto fiat, right? Like they're just kind of, they're just looking for a way to get some US dollar exposure. And for better or worse, that seems to be what a lot of people there want. So then it seems like, well, the market now has stable coins, right? There's the likes of Tether and USDC and others that they are able to use, whether that's for loans or to, for, to try to, if they're trading around. Of course, my preferred answer would just be everyone just go straight to Bitcoin. Although, you know, that's not realistic. I think there will be people who just use it like a bridging step. And so whether that's people trying to use it for payments for services, they're using stable coins. But then that also brings the question of, well, could there be technological approaches 
and not necessarily like the kind of algorithmic stablecoin in the sense that, say, from 2017 era, what we're talking about here is more like technology that allows people to replicate the value of, say, one USD or 100 USD in Bitcoin. So this might be something that comes in the future using this DLC technology, although it does require some updates and changes to the Bitcoin protocol. So this is an area where I'm sort of I'm getting to the edge of what I could explain accurately. But essentially, the idea is that you might load in a certain number of sats based on what that price is. And you might have to load in a bit more than that because obviously there's price movement. And then the other person, the other side of that trade is the one who's, well, one side is being, is like offering the offer. The other side is the one who wants the stability. And so then they would have to true up at the end. And just like now in a lightning channel, like if I, if I have a lightning channel open with you and I send some to you, and then we close that lightning channel, well, your true balance is what goes back to you on chain. So in a similar kind of way, I think that's kind of the idea of like a, like a lightning stablecoin, although it might not be exactly the same as lightning today because it might not have like multi-hop. Like for example, in the lightning network today, it can route through multiple parties. Whereas in this case, it would be more like a one-to-one aspect. But I think it might be a couple of years before we, we really get that coming to fruition and actually being available. There are other efforts being done one, I like when I was in El Salvador for La Bitcoin, uh, some of the money on chain guys were talking to me. And that's basically like a stable coin that they're doing using RSK. Now, uh, being honest, I haven't, I haven't looked into in depth in how that works, but that's another idea that people are exploring. Wow. And so if I was going to try to summarize what I think I heard through discrete log contracts, which is happening all on Bitcoin, you're effectively able to create a synthetic stable coin. So if a person wants to hold dollars because, and we all understand why stable coins work for so many people. They work because most people don't have a lot of disposable income and all of their bills are denominated in dollars and they want to make sure that they can meet those, those obligations at the end of every month after their paycheck. So that's why people want to hold dollars and that's why stable coins are going to be around. I suspect they're going to be around for a very long time. And when I think about the government response here, they might not understand I'd say most people in the community don't even understand what's going on here from a technical standpoint is this can all be synthetically created like you just described on the Bitcoin protocol that if you want to hold dollars, you can make a, a Bitcoin deposit and somebody else is going to take the other side of the trade trying to participate in the volatility direction that they think it's going and you get a stable denominated relative to whatever fiat they're trying to compare it to. That's unstoppable. Like you're not stopping that. You're not able to control that. I don't care who you are from a technical standpoint. Good luck. Yeah. So I, I think that's the goal of what I think there are people working on this kind of idea. That said, you said Strike was offering a one Bitcoin bound so, for somebody that does this. Right. So Strike and HRF have put up, I believe it was a one Bitcoin bounty for somebody who's able to create, uh, now I don't know the details of it, but essentially it was an interesting idea it came across uh, my feed. Now, I think there are others who, let's say, Shortbits, right? So they're a team working on DLC and Chris Stewart from Shortbits and Nadav Cohen are definitely good ones to speak to on this kind of thing because they could speak to it at a level that I, I'm, I'm kind of only able to give a very high level explanation. Someone like Chris Stewart or Nadav Khan could probably go in more depth there. But yeah, that's essentially the idea. And it, it represents an interesting thing because when you think about it, like 
what are regulators going to be able to stop then if they if this gets if this ends up being built into Bitcoin, let's say it comes in two or three years time. Well, maybe people use stablecoins for the here and now, right? The tethers and USDCs of the world and others. And then in a few years' time, if this idea is there, well, then they they might choose to use that. Now, of course, everything has trade-offs, and you know we don't know. There could be some other security trade-off or some other availability. Something you know, it could be something there. But I think that's definitely an interesting aspect. Now, we're also seeing other approaches. So, for example, John Carvalho with Synthetics, I believe it's called. His new startup is kind of having a Bitcoin wallet that does Bitcoin and Lightning and I believe Tether because it's kind of like there's an ownership relationship there with, I believe, with Bitfinex or Tether, either, either or. But that's like another way of having everything all in one app, right? You've got Bitcoin, Lightning and Tether all, all in the one app. So that's another possibility. And so that might be an interesting angle also. So there's this video floating around of Vitalik quoting that 85 terabytes per year is totally fine. I mean, this is this is crazy talk. This is like, and I don't want to bash, I'm not here to bash other projects. I, I really want everybody to, to be able to work on whatever they think is value added, right? We're obviously Bitcoiners. We think that there's value in keeping the block size small and like the long-term growth. You know, and I think when you're talking about decentralization, it's so important to not talk about today where it's at, but where's it going to be in 10 or 20 years from now? Um, and when I look at all these other protocols, that's the thing for me from an engineering standpoint. I'm just saying the growth rate is far exceeding the, the growth rate of storage capacity and hardware in a super meaningful kind of way. So what are your thoughts on this quote? 85 terabytes per year is totally fine as far as the <laughs> amount of uh, storage that's needed. That's in today's terms. I couldn't imagine what 10 years the terms would be. And maybe what are your thoughts on some of these other protocols that are trying to do all of these things on layer one? I'm not aware of the full context of what Vitalik was saying, but I mean, generally, it sounds pretty crazy to me. I believe in the idea that the average person should be able to run a Bitcoin node. Now, my hope is that it's able to be sustained and that people can do this. And there might be other tricks and things that are employed to be able to keep it that way, whether that is Assume UTXO by James OB, or maybe uh, Taj Dreiger's work on UTXO, Taj and uh, some others as well. So those might be interesting ideas. But essentially, the point being, if you don't make it easy for average people to be able to run a Bitcoin node or to be able to run a node, then the system will tend to centralize. And when the system tends to centralize, then you have to be thinking about the capture and political risks associated. Because if the system becomes overly centralized, are, what are you really creating? Are you, just crea- are you just recreating a new system, but with yourselves at the top? I think most of us here in Bitcoin see this like we're trying to create something different. We're trying to create something that's not corrupted in the same way that the fiat system has become. And so for me, it just seems very, it's counter to the point. I just don't see why there's a long term there. Now, I understand that. Now, for some people, maybe, now I don't, I'm not a trader, I'm a stacker and a hodler, but maybe there are some people out there who think I can just play this for the short term and I'm going to try to time it in and out and whatever. I wouldn't recommend it. I think most people will fail trying that. I think there's tons um, of them too, Stefan. I yeah. think there's tons of them. Yeah. And I just wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to try to time that. Right? I don't know that episode you and I did about the final cycle, right? We don't want to try to time this. You want to just be yeah. accumulating regularly because. You never know when it is the final cycle. <laughs> it could happen, right? This is gradually, then suddenly. 
And in the meantime, just, you, yeah. you've been doing a hundred percent compound annual growth rate. So, I mean, there's, there's no rush. <laughs> if anything, exactly. If anything, you want it to kind of stay, you know, at a slower growth rate so you can stack more of it. Exactly right. And I think that's ultimately it's about patience. And so we're living in an age when very few people have patience and very few people are really thinking about the long term. Yeah. But I think that is the essence of Bitcoin ethos is really thinking about and building for the long term, whether that is, you know, you're having a family and having children to pass on for a legacy or whether you're building a protocol and you, uh, you want this protocol to last many, years, many, many years after you and I are gone, that we want something there that creates a certain level of discipline that was not there and available in the fiat world. I think it's fair to say that there are cultural impacts of fiat money. And so this is something I've been talking about for years. I've written about this. Uh, people like Safetyn uh, and the OG, Gita Hulsman, Austrian economist, has written extensively about this. I think there are cultural impacts of fiat money. It causes us to make more high tide preference or impatient decisions when Really, the important decisions we make are those long-term decisions about what am I doing over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so that is really, I think, a, a significant difference in the mindset of the typical Bitcoiner versus what many altcoin enthusiasts are thinking about. So I really just think it comes down to having enough people who have that vision and have that belief that, yeah, we really can make the world a better place. And part of that starts with fixing the money, as Marty Bent says, right? Fix the money, fix the world. I got two more questions for you. The one here that I'm really curious to hear your answer to, what was the biggest takeaway for you or the biggest surprise in 2021 that you just didn't Ooh. see coming? It's got to be the El Salvador legal tender law, right? Like yeah. Just to think that an entire country would just go there and just say, yeah, You've got to think about it from this point of view, right? A lot of countries are not thinking very forward. They're not thinking, they, they might see something as like, hey, this is a cash cow. I'm just going to make money out of it. And look, I can get capital gains. But to actually go the other way and realize and, and arguably see that there's a long-term vision. Now, of course, I think there are, it's right, there are certain aspects of criticism around Bukele and what's going on in El Salvador. But I also think it's fair to say he's giving empowerment to the people and giving and taking away a very important intervention that the government has, which is capital gains tax. If you take that away, you are massively opening up the market, I think. And I'm really interested to see what happens with the Bitcoin city, right? This whole idea of basically, well, zero income tax, but a, a 10% sales tax. And it, maybe it'll be more like a user pays model, who knows? So I think that's probably the biggest surprise. I think probably number two on that would be the China bans Bitcoin, right? Because up until yes, then, yes. it was it was a, it was a meme. It was like, yeah, not, whatever. We've I did not see Bitcoin that. every Tuesday, right? <laughs> and then actually, a lot of the network did move out. Now, in fairness, there's still a reasonable chunk of miners there in China, but still, we're probably talking in something like hundreds of thousands of miners mining equipment or those ASICs were shifted out of China into USA, Kazakhstan, Canada, and other places around the world. And so that was probably the other the other big surprise for 2021 for me. So uh, Joggy uh, posted a comment. He wanted you to expand on the idea of growth deflation. I was curious <laughs> what this is. This is one of my hobby horse issues. I love talking about growth deflation because I see it as Bitcoin is this massive positive sum technology for the world. 
right? Because we are going to be living in a world where your money rises in purchasing power because a lot of people think about deflation the wrong way. And so I've done various episodes on my show talking about this and it's like a hobby horse issue for me. A lot of people think deflation is bad, but actually what we need to do is distinguish between the types of deflation because there is the credit collapse sort of deflate or bank credit deflation, which is like the economy is collapsing because of the prior overinflation or mal- the malinvestments created are now being wiped away because the market is sort of realizing effectively that those investments were not profitable or the entrepreneurs realize they do not have the resources to complete that. That's one aspect of the quote unquote bad deflation. But there's also the good deflation, which is growth deflation. And so growth deflation just refers to the beneficial rise in purchasing power that we would experience under a hard money world, whether that's a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard. I obviously believe it's going to be a Bitcoin standard. So just by merely holding Bitcoin, we will become richer over time. And so I think it'll be really different to think about because we are used to, and we've, for all of our lives, we've grown up in a world where you lose purchasing power over time if you hold it in dollars. And so I just think it's such a phenomenal and incredible concept to me. And I think it's so poorly understood as well, because I think people just conflate everything together. They don't, they're not able to distinguish and decompose those into their component parts and say, oh, hey, this growth deflation. And to understand living in a Bitcoin, living under a Bitcoin standard, living in the Bitcoinized world, the hyper Bitcoinized world is going to be a growth deflationary world. So the future is bright. I really think that is the white pill for all of us is that, look, there, there are times now where we might not be as free as we want to be, but I really do believe the future is going to be bright uh, so long as we make it there, that uh, a Bitcoin standard will genuinely improve the way society operates in so many ways. And I think we're going to basically massively re- remove uh, or reduce global poverty. We're going to massively you know, give people much more of a, an opportunity to really engage in what they want to do and work on things that are in their passion and things that they really believe in for the long term. So that's my message on growth deflation. So if I was going to summarize this, for Stefan Lavera, the price of meat in 2021 went down. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> that is excellent. Yes, that's right. Okay, I lied. There's one more question. Your okay. uh, a favorite book or maybe um, in if you have a book that's not about Bitcoin or finance, and then maybe a Bitcoin or finance book. An interesting one that hit me uh, was by Cal Newport, Deep Work. Right? I think that was an interesting one because essentially the message and the moral of that story was that people are getting distracted by the likes of social media when actually we are living in a time where the rewards go to the people who are the best in their field. And so the people who are the best in their field are often the ones who are able to spend that time doing deep work. And so that for me was an interesting one. Yeah, I would say that's probably the, the non-Bitcoin book. And then the Bitcoin book, probably one of my favorites is, well, The Ethics of Money Production by Guido Holzman. So that for me was probably like a really, I just have such a strong recollection of reading that book. I was away on a work trip. I was still in, my fiat, in a fiat job at that time. And I, this is maybe 2013 or 14. And so obviously I was really into Bitcoin at that point. And I was reading this book and obviously there's not one mention of Bitcoin in the book. I think the book came out in 2008, funnily enough. You're just reading that book and you're just thinking, wow, like it's just confirming so many things that we thought about our Bitcoin thesis. 
And so I remember reading that in 2013 or 14, and it just really, it was such a strong, strongly influential book on my own thought. And so that's why the ethics of money production is uh, probably one of my favorites there. And I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Guido Holzman, the author as well. We are going to have a, a link in the show notes to Stefan's interview with the author. And obviously, you have an amazing, amazing podcast. I listen to your podcast all the time, Stefan. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Is there anything else that you want to highlight or point the, the audience to? So, um, yeah, so stefanlevera.com is the place to find my podcast. And of course, I work at Swan Bitcoin as well. So that's swan.com. That's where people can uh, you know, learn about Bitcoin and start accumulating Bitcoin as well. And uh, Preston, it's been a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work also. I think you do a great job at really skillfully asking good questions. So that's why I'm, I'm a big fan of your work also. Yeah. Once again, thank you for inviting me. Awesome having you, Stefan. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.